Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies. Old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is Season 4, Episode 7, our penultimate season covering movies on Hulu. And today we are going to be going back to 2012, a decade ago, and talking about Ryan Johnson's Looper. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matty, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Right now we've got me and my kids and everything, we're paying attention to San Diego Comic-Con, so that'll place the time when we're recording this, Mm -hmm. uh, and we're seeing, you know, what's coming out, so very excited about those things. My daughter decided that she wanted to do, we normally celebrate Star Wars Day on May the 4th, and she was like, we need to celebrate a Marvel Day. So what we're thinking is that we do it every year during the week of Mar- of San Diego Comic-Con, and then at some point we try to make it out there. So we're probably going to be doing some a little bit of like a Marvel day this week. So I don't know, kind of excited about that. Oh, fun. That'll be really nice. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say you could do uh, June 16th for 616. Yes. It, ooh, that does make a lot of sense. That's a really good idea. Ooh, maybe we'll think about that for next year for next I like year, this yeah. idea. maybe i'll join you maybe we'll do something for streaming that's yeah that's a great idea do so i'm writing that down bonus episode and the, if great we just start idea. with iron man then in uh 30 years we'll be caught up to now <coughs> uh yeah that'd be wonderful Woo! unless we cover the tv shows in which case man who knows just never ending yeah you can't cover them fast enough <laughs> not not unless something catastrophic happens which hopefully it will not yeah for sure yeah and i'm on a vacation as of now i finished up work maybe 90 minutes or so ago and yeah we i took the week off next week we're headed up to maine and just gonna relax so wasn't actually quite sure we were gonna get this recording in before we left but i'm glad we're able to do it yeah, squeezing it in. At the, we had to record early so that we could squeeze it in before y'all are leaving. So, yeah, uh, which gotta, is great, but got it packed tonight. So, yep. Uh, so, Looper. What's your? This movie came out as I said ten years ago. This was actually just about, maybe just a little after when you and I became friends. When we, I guess, internet met for the first time. But what's your history? with this movie so i was trying to figure out i have seen it once before and i enjoyed it when i watched it before so i was excited to watch it and i was excited for you to watch it Mm -hmm. but i was trying to figure out when i watched it or even how i watched it like in what format and all of those things and i could not figure it out for the life of me i couldn't i don't think i saw it in the movie theater i'm pretty sure that i didn't i but I can't remember if I saw it on a DVD or on or if I streamed it or something. I feel like I vaguely remember getting it from Redbox and like seeing the the DVD title sequence and all mm-hmm. of those things as part of watching the movie, which apparently it has a very interesting title sequence where it kind of loops through. You don't realize what it's doing, but it loops through the plot of the time loop that happens. So, uh, yeah, and all of those things. So I don't know. It's a, it's, I really love, 
I really love time travel movies. And then additionally, one of the main reasons why I was excited to watch this when I watched it is I think that it was because I had seen Ryan Johnson was going to be directing The Last Jedi. So that would put this around like 2014, 2015 when that announcement was made. But it's hard for me to pinpoint it exactly. Got it. Yeah, I searched back through our chats and I didn't have a time of you mentioning it to me so it wasn't something that that you were like suggesting that I watch I as I've said already it's not a movie that I had seen but it was a movie that I was tracking I just had forgotten that I was tracking it I I thought there was a chance that it was the Bruce Willis movie and then once you you like can't really get past the titles the like pick, picking it on Hulu without realizing it's the Bruce Willis movie and then once i was so i knew that it was that movie before i started it and then once i was in the movie i remember watching the trailer quite a bit of times um mm. like because i also am very into time travel movies and this is around the time where like I was really into seeing science fiction movies and we're just a little bit after Inception. This is the same year as The Dark Knight Rises, same year as Avengers. Right. I guess we'll we'll get into all of that. But so the the idea of like timey wimey movies was very exciting to me. And then I think I just marry my my wife, she actually saw it without me and she was pretty sure that it had come out before we started dating because she she was like well I don't think I would have seen this movie without you like it's a very you movie and then I had to do some (laughs) some forensic digging through our chats to figure out like where I was when she saw it and turns out I was down in California visiting my friend Evan who we I've mentioned on the show a lot and then she went to went to see it without me. And there are a couple moments where she mentions, like, you should probably go see this movie. You will probably like it. And I was just too... At that time, I was still freelancing. And so my life was just not very predictable. So I never, never made it. And I, I think the movie I was confusing it with was actually Limitless. I think that's the Bradley Cooper movie where they get to take drugs that make them i don't know i actually saw that movie but (laughs) i can't remember yeah but can't remember for sure and so i think when i saw limitless it sort of like crossed looper off in my head at the same time because i had sort of conflated them and then i yeah i just had never seen it until now yeah excellent so why did this was one that you had spearheaded doing for the podcast because you had seen it I don't I didn't know it was Ryan Johnson when we picked it. So what was your thought process here? Why did you want to do it for the show? Yeah, I just felt like this is a very very stream it kind of show to watch because it's a genre film that's, you know, relatively recent. It's an action film but it also has a lot of deep things that you can talk about, a lot of conversation pieces. Mm-hmm. So it felt really well suited for the show. And additionally, I just love Ryan Johnson and his work and we had a lot of films 
on our slate that were less action-oriented the previous part of the season that you've heard heard us talk about. And so it felt good to get back to kind of one of these action films towards the other se- and towards the end of the season. And it's also this kind of genre deconstruction film that I felt paired well with the film we had intended for the end of the season, which we were planning on doing Deadpool. So it felt like it paired well with all of those things and all of that together, I felt like made a good choice for this film. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, glad to, glad to do it. Glad to finally a decade later be able to cross it off my list. (laughs) And the, one of the things that we've been trying to do when it makes sense when we can, and it's just kind of fun is to, we're in 2022 and if we can do a movie from a year that ends in a two then we get to do a nice little decade anniversary which is always kind of fun you know 10 years ago this movie came out so we'll have to set a calendar reminder for september 28th so that we can tweet that it's the 10-year anniversary and direct people to maybe maybe that's how whoever is listening right now found it maybe it was from that that decade tweet that i'm gonna do in whatever, a couple months. Sounds great, yeah. How's that for a loop? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we're time traveling right now. We're speaking to you from the past and referring back to, I don't know, it's a a time loop. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about 2012. (laughs) This, I said to you, you know what happened in 2012? It was another election year, and that's really... Like, we have a couple big events that we had pulled, but going through the Wikipedia, at least for me, I don't know if you had this experience of events that happened in 2012. First of all, it's astounding, like, how much less horrible, and not that there weren't horrible things that happened in 2012, but it's just, like, that feeling that we have now when we look at anything from, like, 2015 on, where the Wikipedia page is just, like, an avalanche of horrible like that wasn't present when I was looking through through 2012 it was mostly stuff I didn't remember to be honest yeah there was a there was a few a few big events that I think were particularly stood out and are particular particularly traumatic that uh, we'll actually probably cover but otherwise it you know it just doesn't feel the same as the years since 2016 and kind of the the way that every single week was just something terrible going on though for me i i remember 2012 as being i don't know like a particularly weird and difficult year but also kind of optimistic because i was finishing up my degree and i did student teaching in 2012 and then i got my job as a teacher in 2013, which I've been doing now for just about 10 years. And so, you know, I was broke, incredibly poor at the time period, had, had you know, basically not even a dime to my name, trying to make things work. And it was hard for me to get to the movies to watch them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's probably, th- that's probably why I'm thinking I remember watching it like on Redbox or whatever, whatever was cheap. But that's kind of what stands out to me in my memory, my experience of 2012. Yeah, I mean, I remember, like, there were a lot of movies that I was pretty excited for this year. Um, here, I can run down the the top 10 movies in 
in terms of box office for this year. And this, if you're someone who doesn't like your that top ten to be dominated by I, existing IPs, I have bad news for you about 2012 because I think every single one of them is existing IP. And I actually saw. I did pretty well this year. I I saw, I think, six out of the ten here. So, as I mentioned before, number one was the Avengers, <laughs> Marvel's Avengers. Number two was Skyfall, the James Bond film, which I'm guessing you have not seen Skyfall, right? I have not, no. Yeah, because that that, that's one of the very, very good ones, in my opinion, anyway. I and have then, heard that. Number three is The Dark Knight Rises, the conclusion to the Christopher Nolan trilogy, the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. Uh, Number four is The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, which I believe that's the first of The Hobbit movies, correct? Yes, the first one, the good one. Um, Yeah. Though I enjoyed the second one a bit more than I think most people did, and uh, even I didn't enjoy the third one particularly a lot. And the the people just kind of really hated that one. But the first one, very, you know, mostly positive reviews on that one. Yeah, I have not revisited it since I saw it in theaters. But I, when I saw it, I was like, do I want to spend another two and a half hours in Middle Earth? Yes, of course I do. And at that point, I thought I would just see all of them. But I still haven't even seen the third one of this of these. So. Wow, yeah. Yeah, which I probably will do before the Amazon series comes out later this year, but just because I have that weird brain thingy, but yeah. Makes sense. So I'm four for four four in terms of these top movies, but I'm going to miss on the next two. So number five is Ice Age Continental Drift, which this one you might have seen, right? Yes, I've seen that one. Yeah. And then number six is The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2. I've not seen that one. I did not. I've seen all the other ones besides the two Breaking Dawn films. Mm. And then number seven is the first Peter Garfield Spider-Man movie, The Amazing Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not part of an existing series, but clearly existing IP at that point yeah. and reboot. known. Yeah, reboot exactly. Number eight is Madagascar Three: Europe's Most Wanted. And then yeah, didn't watch that one. Oh, you didn't? I thought maybe no. you did. I thought <laughs> no. maybe that was your top one. Yeah, no, no, haven't seen it. And then we close out with. I'm actually surprised this is so far down the list, considering how famous it would, the series would end up being, or at least my perception of how famous the series would end up being. But it's the first Hunger Games movie. Yeah, and the reason why it's so far down the list is because it didn't do very well internationally compared to some of these other mm. ones. But the domestic box office, I think, is number three on the year for that film. Yeah, and then number 10 is Men in Black 3. Uh, yep, uh, it makes sense. And like you said, all of these are existing intellectual properties that uh, either sequels or reboots or something. Uh, you don't get to new films until you get to 11 which is a remake of a popular children's or, or young adult book life of pi and then you have ted which is the first like original mm. original film and you know it was also not good at all so kind of the and then brave you finally have brave once you get far far enough down uh number 13 uh another movie that was not particularly well loved but was excellent so people were wrong 
<laughs> Stay tuned for that future episode of Stream It. For sure. Uh, so, I, I mean, Avengers and Dark Knight Rises are really the things that, like, overshadow this year completely for me when, like, if as I'm not thinking films. about the presidential race between Obama and Mitt Romney, like, someone says 2012 and I think, like, oh, that is the year that, for me, like, everything changed in terms of how I watched superhero movies and the fact that, like, this impossible movie was able to be done and able to be done in a way that in my opinion was really quite excellent and yeah it felt like a big step forward for genre kind of a new a new era in film has been since 2012 going forward is that's kind of it you know we've talked about this Mm -hmm. in the past when we talked about slumdog millionaires being kind of the end of the previous era and then you have this kind of liminal space in between there and the avengers where things really just kind of get blown away and you're very much in the mcu dominated time period of film going forward and superheroes in particular and that was happening a little bit before this but the avengers with its box office just record-setting numbers that year completely changed cinema and it's we're still in the middle of that in the middle of that i guess era that reign of the mcu films so looper comes out near the beginning of that and is a much smaller film and it's hitting that interesting space in the theaters where it's very much like counter-programming to the superhero stuff that's going on, but it's mm-hmm. still appealing to the fans of genre films that, you know, someone's going to go see one of these big tentpole blockbusters in the theater. They're going to see previews for Looper, and then they'll go see it later on because they're wanting something a little bit different, a little bit darker, maybe grittier, something a little bit more intellectual, maybe. And so I think that's kind of where this was aiming for. Yeah, or they might just be chasing that rush, you know, just trying to get that feeling of Dark Knight Rises or Avengers or Skyfall back in the theaters. That all makes sense. I had a couple events that I pulled just because I, well, one of them because I remembered it. So in December of this year, Washington State became the first state in the country to legalize weed, legalize marijuana, uh, something that seems impossibly close and also impossibly far away at this point. It's like, (laughs) uh, yeah, kind of kind of wild that it was only 10 years, but also, oh, it was that long ago. And this film definitely deals with drugs. It's part of the underlying underlying structure of the story in a major way and Mm -hmm. so i think those those ideas intersect yeah that makes sense i hadn't thought about that when i pulled it but yeah you were able to able to bring us home and then the other one i would have failed a test on what year this happened so badly i am not sure i could have gotten the correct decade i'm not sure i like i don't know how close I would have been. But May 7th of 2012, Putin became the president of Russia. Yes, though so he was the... I can't remember what he was called beforehand. He was the prime minister or the premier or something like that. And then yeah. he got voted in as... I Voted in in heavy air quotes. And has essentially installed himself as lifelong president in 2012. So, yeah, 
that's and talk about an event that's like you know it seemed big to me at the time period but i think it kind of went under a lot of people's radars it definitely went under mine yeah but you know that had a huge snowball effect into the future again tying in with themes of this of this film yeah and then you had some stuff you had pulled so what what do you got so the first one that that I pulled was this one I felt like was really important to talk about as far as movies go. Um, when the Dark Knight Rises released, there was the shooting in Aurora, Colorado on July 20th. And it was in the movie theater when people were there to see the Dark Knight Rises. And it was, I didn't get the exact numbers, but many people were, it was a lot of people killed and something like 60 or 70 people were injured. And that was one of the things that stuck out to me in particular that year, especially as someone that loves going to the movie theater. For me, that was, it really kind of shook me particularly hard. We had had a lot of shootings previous to this so that part of it wasn't something that really impacted me but a movie theater being for me a place that it is, has been for so long like I call the, going to the movie theater going to church because it feels like I don't want to I don't know it's kind of like a sacred space but I don't want to give it like a religious feel it's just it's a place where I very much feel at home and very much is like a special place to me and so that happening at a movie theater really rocked me and now even I went to go see with my family when we went to go see Thor Love and Thunder like a couple of weeks ago. And this moment from Aurora, Colorado, it popped back into my mind because there had been a shooting recently and I was just thinking about that film. And so this is something that has recurred for me when I have gone to the movie theater and has impacted my movie theater experience. And it impacted like every movie that you saw during this year was that there was always this question of what could happen, especially a film like Looper, where there was where it's it's a bit of a violent film. And so there were questions at the time period, like what might happen with the release of this film or, you know, and the conversation around violent films and all of those things that I think is a bit of a misnomer or not a misnomer, a red herring for the actual problem being the guns. But that discussion was in the air and affected everything that you saw. And not only was it in the air, but I, my memory of it was that it permeated further than it ever had before. Like there were a lot more people who generally had been against the talking point of video games causing violence and video games being the issue that I remember being like, oh, what are we doing with with violent films and I think some of that was because that like even if it's most likely coincidental or who knows what connection there would even be but there was just like a pall of death over both of the both of the latest Batman movies because Heath Ledger had obviously died after The Dark Knight and that death is like viewed as tied in with what he did to prepare for that role and how brutal he was on himself and probably linked with some underlying other issues that went untreated or he wasn't able to treat but yeah and then to have the dark knight and i i believe dark knight rises and i believe the shooter was connected to 
like Joker ideology, right? Or was that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He, okay. he dyed so his hair was... green, like the Joker mm-hmm. and all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So it just, yeah, it didn't feel good. <laughs> For sure. And I think I was listening to an interview with Ryan Johnson and he didn't mention like that event because he made this film long before that event happened. Sure. Yeah. But he did say that one of the major impetuses for this film and one of the major themes that he was looking at was this idea of the way that, particularly in American society, we we use violence and we use violence symbolically and in particular with guns. And so he wanted to deconstruct that idea and the cycle of violence or the loop of violence that is caused by that. And that's what the the, that's what the film is about and that's what he talked about in a in an interview with the Toronto Film Film Festival festival that uh, I should probably link in. I'll have to try to remember to link that into the show notes. But so just the idea of that event I think also ties with what Ryan Johnson was trying to say and the ideas he was trying to de- deconstruct in this film. Yeah. We'll move on and talk about Ryan Johnson here in a bit, but did you have anything else you wanted to talk about from 2012? This one is not as depressing as the Aurora, Colorado thing. Uh, it's the end of the world, the yes, Mayan calendar finally. thing. And it was driving me so crazy at this time period. And so this film comes out at the end of uh, September. So right as it's leading up into the big will it or won't it, the world end thing about the whole you know, Mayan calendar, December 2012. And... I just remember I was student teaching at the time period. So I was like dealing with kids and I literally had to calm kids down that were panicked that the world was going to end. I remember, I remember having family members call me like, do you think it really is like for, for reals? I had to talk people out of the idea that the world was going to end in 2012. And it was driving me insane because it's just such a weird, like it was so obviously fake and dumb and, (laughs) (laughs) so i had so many conversations where i was like no stop it i was so sick of the topic and that's right when this film came out right in that pocket of time period so i remember that part very vividly even though a lot of people probably forgot you know that's what was going on at the end of 2012 uh yeah i definitely did and yeah until you brought it up (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness it's so annoying so we, anyway, i don't yeah. think we were even like at a part point in our friendship where that was the type of stuff we were talking about so that's probably why i forgot about it we were mostly still just talking about like magic uh, magic the gathering and like brandon sanderson books and yeah. probably the avengers to be honest yeah probably makes sense and then the other thing that happened at the end of this year that i wanted to mention just because and it like it sucks. It sucks how often we have to mention these in the show as major flagpole events. But I just completely forgot it was the same year as Aurora. But the Sandy Hook shooting was in December of this year. And when I was scrolling through, like those were the two those were the two events from this year that I remembered the most. And yeah. that sucks. It's just like horrible (laughs) there aren't yeah yeah i don't i don't have a lot to say about it especially because we talked about aurora but it's that year of having aurora happen and then turning around and having sandy hook happen and you know it's like 
Sandy Hook and Parkland and then the Las Vegas shooting and the the Pulse nightclub shooting are some of the big ones that have had such an impact on me, even though there's been so many. Those ones all have particularly stood out to me. And the Uvalde shooting that just recently happened, these are kind of really big tent poles for me personally. And I, I, it would be incomplete to talk about 2012 without mentioning that that had happened. Yeah, and I guess, like, this is as good a place as any to say, like, this show's going to come out, what, I think, like, either, I guess I don't 100% remember, but sometime in August or September, and we're in a midterm election year, and this is an unfortunate truth of our country, and if there is going to be any, like, any chance of it getting fixed make sure you're registered to vote and vote for Democrats. Like, I don't know <laughs> what else what else to say, but if we can get one person registered who wouldn't have otherwise registered, then uh, that's probably more useful than any of the conversations we've had on the podcast so far. For sure. And for me, it's, you know, a hard thing for me to remember to tell people to get registered because I live in a in an automatic registration state. So I'm automatically registered, which is another thing that you should definitely support a kind of policy. But go out, get yourself registered, check it. Like as soon as you hear this, it, it stop, pause the podcast and go check if you're registered. I remember before our state became an automatic voter voter registration state, I just was like, I would check my voter registration every two weeks. Didn't matter when, just because I was always panicking, like, oh, is it, is it, am I still registered? Is everything still good? And I just keep checking. And there were a couple times uh, where I have found that my, that I was unregistered, like I was purged from the voter rolls and things like that. And so it was very useful for me to do that, to keep up on those things. And I'm glad that now I don't have to do that because of the laws in the state that I live in. But, you know, go check, make sure that you're registered, get out and make sure that you're going out and, and voting this year. It has a big impact. We talk a lot about his history in this podcast and the influence that that political leaders have. And you know, go choose good ones. Yeah. <laughs> every show we're talking about the damn presidential election. It comes up every single time. Yeah. We're cursed. Uh, let's move on to personnel and and stats. What was the? How'd this movie do at the box office? So the budget of this film was $30 million, which, which was a huge increase from Ryan Johnson's previous budget. So this was his first, like, big film. And this is $30 million nowadays is not, like, a ton of money. And at the t- time period, that's, like, a middle-of-the-road uh, film. I was going to guess, yeah. Yeah, so that's, like, a, a little bit lower, but, like, a middle kind of box office film. And it ended up turning around and making $180 million, which is a great return on, on investment. That's, you know, 600% return on investment. Excellent performance. And so that that turns into Ryan Johnson is able to make, is kind of called in to make The Last Jedi, which is, you know, a huge, tremendous box office success later on. So you can see kind of where that's going. People like this film when it came out. It got a lot of buzz for the amount of promotion and the amount of money that it cost. It made a great return on investment. Yeah, 90 in the 90% for the Rotten Tomatoes and I think the audience yeah. score in the in the 80s. It was a B plus cinema score, so that's yeah, pretty good overall. Yeah, and then let's uh, we've been putting it off long enough, so why don't I'll 
I'll go get a drink of water, go to the bathroom, and you can monologue <laughs> about Ryan Johnson here. And I'll, monologue I'll be about back Ryan in Johnson. 10 minutes. Yeah. Ryan Johnson is one of like my favorite filmmakers currently working. It's a, it like top five fit current favorite filmmakers. I just adore everything that he's done. He's made several of my just favorite movies of all time. Looper, I really enjoy, but out of the ones of his movies that I've seen, it's my lowest, even though I, I really love this film. Mm-hmm. But The Last Jedi and Knives Out are just incredible incredible films he does such good work and one of the things that i really love about about ryan johnson and you see this in looper and also all of his other films is that he is really good at taking genre and deconstructing it and then putting it back together in ways that are both you know both deconstruct and have a dialogue with the genre, but also are true to the genre itself. So they are respectful homages while also updating formulas and putting twists on things that maybe you weren't expecting and uh, having a dialogue with things that have come beforehand. And so because of that, he's just, he's so good. He's such an excellent filmmaker and he's one of my favorites. Yeah, I do want to give just a quick shout out. You did mention um, The Last Jedi, and so I do want to give a shout out to famous Last Jedi lover CJ, who was a guest on our Mission Impossible podcast. So I know CJ just became a dad, so I'm, I'm sure he'll be really, really happy to hear this shout out and be associated with a movie he loves so much. So Yeah, that's great. And go listen to Icon or Wycon. We love that yeah, show. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It is. It's a good show. Yeah, I so I guess this is the third Ryan Johnson film I've seen cuz I haven't seen Brick or or Brothers Bloom, but I do love Knives Out and I do love Last Jedi and I'm similarly very excited for Glass Onion later this year. Oh, I'm so excited for Glass Onion. Yes. You know, that's another thing when Glass Onion comes out, we're going to have to remember that and and put out a tweet go listen to our Looper episode. That's right. That's right. Uh. So it's he's such a good director. And one of the things that I got from listening to, I listened to a bunch of interviews while I was pre- preparing today with Emily Bunt and Emily Blunt and George, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> and yeah, I know we stumbled over uh, Emily's name. I'm so sorry if you're listening to this, Emily. Um, so all of these different people and they just have such glowing praise for Ryan J- Johnson as a director. He is particularly known for working so well with with actors and so he's very good at explaining like what his ideas are for what needs to come across and having a vision of what's going on but even more than that the actors talk about him and they love and respect him because of how well he connects with them on a human level which is something that a lot of directors don't do yeah that we'll talk a little bit more about why that doesn't surprise me once we get into the back half of the show. But that, yeah, that does not surprise me. It also, you know, for Last Jedi and Knives Out, it always feels... Sometimes you can tell... I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting. But it feels like everyone's just having fun in those movies. It feels like it was a good work environment, you know? Which doesn't always translate, but... Well, that's one of the things they said about this one. They just said it was fun. They were asking these actors what was particularly challenging emily blunt says nothing this film was really easy to film because it was just enjoyable i loved showing up to work every single day and then joseph gordon levitt said yeah same for me except that i had to sit in the makeup chair for three hours every day for the prosthetics that went on his face so besides that wonderful and enjoyable 
I wanted to talk a little bit about, so I looked up Endgame Entertainment, which is the production company that's listed at the beginning of this movie. And I'm really glad I did because it turns out it was founded by James D. Stern, who is not someone that I I previously knew his name, but I guess he's a theater producer as well. And he was not the tippy-top line producer for Hairspray, which uh, was produced on Broadway in 2003, won Best Musical. But he is like, he is on those top lines, like above the the title of, above the title of the show. And so in 2002, just a year before, a year before Hairspray, he founded Endgame Entertainment, which he wanted to be a movie studio that would be able to do more independent films and do stuff that was a little, maybe a little riskier, a little off the beaten path. So I don't know if you loaded this page, Maddie, but I looked through and I, I don't have, I, I, I only have one other movie on this list, which is An Education, which was three years before this. And I only watched it because it was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, I haven't seen any of these, but he, they did produce The Brothers Bloom, which was a Ryan Johnson film. So that's, I assume, where they had this relationship from. Yeah, probably. And I don't know. I think it's always nice when you can find these little little production companies that are interested in funding some of the, the more interesting films because it you you can always be a little more confident, I think, that the director really got to make the movie that they wanted to make. And I think this feels like he did. Well, one of the things that he talked about that's coming back to me is that he felt like the... He mentioned that the movie studio let him make it like it was a play. So, Mm. which is... Again, it's not the kind of thing that you typically get to do with big budget films. They got to like do a bit of a lot of rehearsal beforehand, get everything down, and then they performed. Um, they perform each of the scenes kind of like you would a play, but with the cameras and everything there. And that's how they felt when they were making it. And so that makes sense to me that if this is the studio that was involved, that's why they were able to make it in that manner. Yeah, makes sense. So we I think we wanted to talk just a little bit about some of our some of our actors here. The cast is the cast is great. Oh, so the cast is great. Who do we got? So let, let me talk just real quick about Joseph Gordon Levitt because so this film was written with Joseph Gordon Levitt in mind. The main character's name is Joe because it's that's Joe. Oh, curious. Yeah, because Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Ryan Johnson are best friends. Like, incredibly tight, very close friends. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has been in every film that Ryan Johnson has done, but he usually does, like... He was in Brick, which was a really big film for them when they started off, and he was the lead role in that. But in the other ones, he usually does a, a cameo role and usually an uncredited cameo role. So he in like The Last Jedi, he had an uncredited cameo and also in Knives Out, for example, and all of these kinds of things. And he the reason why this film came together is because he wanted to write a film for Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And then he had this screenplay like sitting in on his hard drive and the producers were like, hey, you should do. They kept bugging him about this one, about that this short film that he had kind of come up with to expand it into a whole film. And he's like, yeah, I think Joe would be really good for this one. So that's where that came from. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt has 
such a great career. He's I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and he's one of my favorite working actors as well. And I feel like for me, I really grew up with Joseph Gordon-Levitt because uh, he was a child actor when I was a kid. He was in Angels in the Outfield and also Third Rock from the Sun. And he was a child actor in both of those things. And those are films that I watched as a kid were close to the same age, me and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And so seeing his career progress, I've really connected with. Um, He was in 10 Things I Hate About You, which is a film that I watched at the time period. And I loved it. And he was so good in it. He was in Treasure Planet, another one that I watched as it came out. uh, And he plays the kid in that one. And then later on, he has his first big break as a movie star. He never... He always got, like, typecast in these kind of comedic roles and these very childish roles. And people didn't think he could do serious work until Ryan Johnson cast him in Brick. So that was the first, like, serious dramatic role that he ever got to do. And then they became really close friends on that film. And then it kind of starts this this great trajectory where he transforms his career and he does a lot of these really complex and interesting films and then becomes kind of an action star in Inception and A Dark Knight Rises and Looper kind of around the same period. And then he has Lincoln and Don John and... The Trial of the Chicago 7, all of those kinds of things. And he has coming mm-hmm. out later on this year, the Pinocchio film that he's in. And so this trajectory of his career is just astounding. Yeah. So much range on this guy, too. He's just, he can act as anything. He's great. And an IMDb page <laughs> that is miles long. Miles long, long. yes. It's his very long IMDb page. Speaking of a long IMDb page... Um, the, really this film is kind of like the way that people were conceptualizing it was as a Bruce Willis film. Even when you had talked about, you said, I thought that was the Bruce Willis film. And so Bruce Willis is in this film and he is great. He performs the role so well. And Bruce Willis was, you know, they weren't sure who, who they were going to get in, but he was on like their idea board for what they wanted casted for this film. And the idea of this part was really written, like, with Bruce Willis in mind. Bruce Willis, famous for... So he has a really interesting career. He starts off as a comedic actor in television, similar to Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who people didn't really believe had the chops for something that was more complex or darker or more action-oriented until he was cast in Die Hard, which was his first big movie success. And then he became just one of the biggest action stars of all time, all through the 80s and 90s. And he showed up in so many just incredible and critically acclaimed films. He was in Fifth Element and Twelve Monkeys and Pulp Fiction, all of these different films, and has an incredibly impressive resume over, you know, 40 years. And so this film, like this idea of the film of like Bruce Willis goes and fights the bad guys. He finds out who needs to be killed and he hunts them down and kills them is kind of like the idea that Ryan Johnson was trying to seed into this film and build the film around. Yeah, I mean, just one of the most beloved action stars in this country. Yeah, probably in film for sure. At the time, he was the number eight grossing, highest grossing in the box office actor of all time. 
at at this point he's fallen to number 90 which tells you how much movies have changed in the past 10 years the vast majority wow. of the that list is taken up by people in marvel films um stanley is yeah. number one on the list so just for uh just for some reference nice work if you can get it right huh? yeah so, yeah, there you go, Bruce Willis. Oh, the other thing we wanted to bring up is just recently there was news that Bruce Willis has retired from acting. He has a condition called aphasia, which is a neurological condition which causes a lot of memory issues. And apparently this has been going on for a while, and he just is really unable to act on a movie set at this point because he can't remember his lines or his cues or things like that and it's a really sad story reading through the things that were happening it seems like he's been he's had this kind of condition but there's been a lot of people trying to kind of take advantage of him and keep him on sets even when he really should not have been there it wasn't good for him to be there so it's a it's a very sad thing as far as that goes yeah Definitely. I also had to do a uh, double take every time I saw the uh, the headlines because aphasia is so close to aphantasia. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, felt the same thing. Uh, and then it ends up being much sadder. Uh, much sadder, <laughs> yes. The, the one other thing that I'll add here is that with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, they had prosthetics on his face to make him look more like Bruce Willis. Um, so he had to spend three hours in the oh. three hours in the makeup chair every single day in order to get the prosthetics, and it was like a nose and some lip pieces in order to make them more similar. So it's wor- something worth knowing as you watch this film. Yeah, and then I wanted to briefly mention where this falls in Emily Blunt's career. So Emily Blunt was a stage actress before, as a lot of. British actors are. Looks like she had gone to, I think, I don't fully understand the British school system, but if I'm understanding correctly what I read, she went to a, her last couple years of the equivalent of high school, she was at a school that was famous for training in performing arts, and then her talent was noticed, and she got picked up by by an agent and was able to do quite a bit of stage acting over the course of the next five years over in the in the UK before she finally broke out or finally before she broke out with Devil Wears Prada and then so that was in 2006 so six years before this and then has continued to just have a very solid career after that so 2007, she did Charlie Wilson's War, and in 2009, The Young Victoria, 2010, Gulliver's Travels, she was Princess Mary, and then 2012, Looper, and then the big one for me that that I remember was in 2014, she was Baker's Wife in, in Into the Woods. Yes. And then... Well, also in 2014, she was in Edge of Tomorrow, which is a time loop film. Mm-hmm. So, And she is so good in that movie. It is one of my favorite Emily Blunt performances. It's really, really good. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't realize she was going to be in the upcoming Christopher Nolan film, Oppenheimer, in 2020. Yeah, and I was thinking with her that I bet that there's... I bet that this is a looper connection because Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in so many Christopher Nolan films. And so I bet that as they like met on this film on Looper, that that informed like the conversation between like who should be in this role. I would not be surprised by that at all. 
Yeah. Did you have anyone else you wanted to talk about, or should we? Uh, just move on? two really quick things: the cinematographer Steve Yedlin and the guy that did the music, Nathan Johnson. Both of these guys are just Ryan Johnson regulars. They've done a bunch of his films. And Steve Yedlin does incredible work with cinematography. I don't have a lot to say about them. Besides, they just work really closely with Ryan Johnson and have a lot of similar ways that they look at making film and using genre and then like taking those things, using the rules of genre, sometimes bending those things, sometimes paying homage to those things. So it's all, all connected there. Yeah, um, and Nathan Johnson did... I don't super remember the Knives Out score which he did but he did do the nightmare alley score which was a score that i liked quite a bit when i saw that last year makes sense yeah all right so our last section before the break is if we have any advice or insight for first-time viewers yeah so i know you've got some stuff you want yeah mostly content warning things out of all the films that we've covered this this is one of the more like content heavy films that we've covered i probably wouldn't recommend like just sitting watching this with while you've got like while the kids are up and things like that but in particular there's some content warnings for there's a lot of violence in this film but particularly there's some scenes of violence against children so if that's going to turn you off that might like just know that before going in there's a bit of drug usage in this film there's also some body horror and body horror meaning like you know weird stuff weird and violent stuff happening to people's bodies like body parts falling off and things like that so you know just keep that in mind as you go and then uh, there's you know language and sexual content the same kind of things that you'd expect in a rated r film that's you know not not a great one to watch while the kids are up yeah and the only thing that i wanted to mention was this is There are action sequences in this film, and it is a genre film, but I don't think this is a very good one to put on if you're looking for, like, a mindless popcorn action movie. I think this is one that you're really going to be a lot better off if you're putting it on when you want to make sure you engage your brain, because it is a little timey-wimey, and it doesn't—we'll talk about it in the back half a bit more, but it doesn't hold your hand really at all. It does expect that— you're going to be paying attention and picking up clues and and all of that. Yeah, it's one you want to pay pay attention to as you watch. Yeah. All right, so let's take a break and we will see you on the other side. Sounds good. All right, welcome back. We are going to spoil Looper. So if you didn't have enough time, turn it off now. Who should go first? Should I sure. go first? Because I hadn't seen it. Yeah, let's hear what your thoughts were. Um, yeah, so I liked this movie a lot. There were a couple bumps from me that kept me from loving it that we'll sort of get into. the. I guess there are a couple places where I, f- I could feel the movie, like I saw the, the structure of the movie in in a way and probably like the biggest thing is i don't think that the opening of the movie is all that elegant with the the voiceover that i did kind of expect to have a narrative tie-in and so when it did not have a narrative tie-in then that was probably the most 
well, second most disappointing thing to me about the movie. But that aside, I'd say almost all of the twist and twists and turns of this movie worked on me. I'm guessing just about perfectly. Like I think as I was rewatching scenes and looking back on it, I think the way that I figured stuff out and the way that I was sort of able to track the plot of the movie, all of it worked kind of perfectly for me. So in that sense, I think it, it seemed was, like it was all you were figuring things out at the points where they were wanting you to figure things yeah, out. Yeah, I never felt like I was having to play catch up and I never felt like I was too far ahead of the movie. And if I was ahead of the movie, it was places where I felt like it was places where Ryan Johnson like thought it would be okay, you know, for us to have sort of figured it out. Yeah, yeah, totally get that. It's one of those interest. It's one of those interesting things about movies that are this kind of thing that are a little bit complicated. That the people making the film want you to figure out the qu- twist just a little bit before they actually give it to you, because you feel so mm-hmm. smart and clever when it happens, and you're like, "Ooh, I bet this is what's going to happen," and then it happens, and you feel like you figured it all out. But really, that's the point where they were wanting you to start figuring it out. Uh, a lot of times, it's not intended for you to only find out when you know it occurs out of nowhere. So yeah, I felt like this film sets up a lot of those things well. Anyway, back to you. Oh no, that was all, almost everything that I sort of just set up I have for specific scenes to talk about. So, but yeah, I'd say it was a solid, a solid like, like just under love for me. But it did feel like, it felt like I could see the bones of the craftsmanship in a way that made it feel like a sophomore movie to me in a way that like Knives Out feels very seamless to me. Yeah, I agree with that. And I felt the same way as I was watching it. So with my reaction, I've only seen it once before. So one of the things that was weird for me is I could not remember the majority of the plot details as I came to this film. So oh, so curious. a lot of it was catching me by surprise again. I was like, oh, oh yeah. And like kind of vaguely remembering but my memory was fuzzy and so there are things that kind of surprised me that were happening the only thing that i remembered was the way that it all goes down in the end that stuck out really clearly for me so i knew that was going to happen but other than that you know i just it it worked on me really well this time with that said i don't think i enjoyed it quite as much this time as i did the first time that i watched Mm -hmm. it and i think it's just you know 10 years uh, later watching the film and there's things that don't that I feel like didn't hold on as well so so those didn't sit quite as well with me and like you said I also felt the structure of the story in a lot a lot more than I think I did the first time and I don't know if that's because I'm watching the movie and paying more close attention to it or the more likely reason because I've seen other Ryan Johnson films and I being able to compare them, I just see how much he's grown as a filmmaker in that time period. So I, I think I had sort of a similar reaction to you and I think we probably fell in about the same place. Yeah. And I think the sort of the... Mm, I don't know if the message of the movie, or at least the message that I took of the movie and sort of, which I guess it's hard to see how it couldn't be this idea of like the cycle of violence and needing 
to end the cycle of violence and how damaging and dangerous it is. And I don't know how well it lands when the movie takes such joy in its action sequences and the violence in the movie. It does feel a little... I think there's a way to do it where it feels... What's the word that I'm looking for? It feels like it's turning it back on the audience and it's like, how dare you have taken the joy in this? And it sort of it comes as like a shock. But I didn't feel like that for this movie. I felt like it was trying to sort of have its cake and eat it too. Even though I do believe that he always knew the message that he wanted to say. But I didn't always feel like it lined up with everything. I don't know. How did you feel about that on rewatch? Did you feel like those seeds were planted correctly? So, I don't know. I kind of... We'll get into one of the scenes where I think I I felt the same way that you're feeling about it. Yeah, yeah. in in one of the ones that we get to later on. But overall, on set, it's hard for me to tell because this is my second viewing and not quite my first because I was seeing a little bit more of of just the ideas and the themes behind it than I think I would have if I were watching it for the first time and kind of picking out the themes that he was getting to as it was going along and kind of constructing them. I think that he planted a lot of those seeds earlier on in a lot of kind of small, fine details. But I also kind of agree that it doesn't, it's, it doesn't quite have that unified cohesiveness to what it's saying or what it's doing that I think that Ryan Johnson would be able to do if he made that film now. Yeah, it's kind of a very mature and subversive main theme or mature and subversive thesis for the movie, yeah. but it's made by still kind of a an inexperienced filmmaker, and it doesn't have like... A lot of times when you have young filmmakers who are trying to do something subversive, it comes with like this feeling of like sort of exploding passion and anger that sort of will, that artistry will overtake the craft. But that isn't present in this film. Mm -hmm. This film feels very measured and specific. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, I love the way that you're describing that because I was feeling the same things here. And again, I, I like the film a lot. It's around loving the film, a little bit in between liking it and loving it. And yeah. there's a lot that's really, really good in this film. Uh, a lot of things that were just so, I don't know, a, a lot of scenes that I thought were particularly brilliant or, or wonderful or well-directed or acted or whatever it might be. But there's a few things about the overall unified structure of the film that keep it from being truly great for me yeah let's move on and talk about some of the scenes and we can get into some of the specifics here yeah the first one's yours yeah so the first scene is this like montage at the beginning that's establishing the rules for the loopers and then features you know joseph gordon levitt he's this guy that's been hired essentially by this gang in whatever city this is taking place in and this gang there they they work for this guy from the future and they when the mafia in the future wants to get rid of somebody they send them back in time to get murdered in the past because it's too easy to find the bodies and track down the killers in the future so they just send them into the past 
they take him out there, you know, those bodies get buried somewhere, and the murder disappears, and it's easier to get away with these things, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt works for this gang that is, or, or Joe, I guess we can shorten that up too. He works for this gang, and he is continually killing off these people who arrive just with, you know, bags over their head, over a tarp. He shoots them, they're dead. They fall down, he wraps up the tarp, they go and dispose of it, and this is very easily taken care of. And he's gradually making himself money. The other thing that it shows in the this montage is he's living this life of going out and murdering somebody as his job, and then going and getting his money, partying, you know, basically all night, doing a lot of drugs, going and getting his breakfast at the morning at this diner, practicing some French that he wants to learn, and going through a cycle of this same thing basically every day and then the twist that they give us is that eventually each of these loopers will be asked to close their loop which is they will be sent back into the past to have to murder themselves in order to close all the loose ends that this mafia is dealing with so that's what's happening in the scene i'll pass it back over to you to see what your thoughts are here yeah so this is sort of setting up in the in the like hero's journey structure that we that we I'm the one who likes to talk about <laughs> it a lot. This is really setting up like that ordinary world, yeah. but it's always a little tricky when you're setting up an ordinary world in a world that is going to be extraordinary to the viewers, one that has completely different rules and the I mentioned before that I wasn't a super huge fan of the the voiceover that they used, but what I am a really big fan of is the way he intercuts between showing Joe's like not work life you know his party life or what any of those various things that he does and then it'll party life and the diner scene and mm -hmm. learning the French and that stuff yeah and then it'll just cut back to him shooting someone and really I think that's really effective at showing how desensitized he is to the violence and it's it connects them in our mind because it's showing the shooting and showing the money and then showing the life and so we're able to connect like because he's doing these things he's able to get the money and have the life that he's having able to go out and party and get these drugs but it's not he's the one who sleepwalks through the connection and yeah, I, I think that's really well. Yeah, done. I agree. And one of the things that kind of threw me when I watched it this time is that they do several loops of this. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't remember them. He, I don't know how many people he kills uh, there, but it's like eight or nine or something. And it just keeps happening over and over, and he goes through this loop. And they spend more time on that montage than, than I had anticipated. No, they, they spend quite a bit of time on it, which does sort of bring us to the next scene. I don't know if you wanted to say anything else. I have two more things to say about that previous scene. Okay, yeah, yeah, go ahead. They're small things, though. So so one of the things, I don't know if you noticed the, you. this probably didn't stand out to you, but the car that he's driving, I wanted to mention this car. Oh, no, it didn't. Is it a famous one or a cool so, one? So, yeah, it's a cool car. So that car is a Mazda Miata, which is originally created in, this is a... It was originally the Yunos Roadster, but it's called the Mazda Miata here in the in the states. And so, what's really interesting about this this car? I've driven a Mazda Miata before. It is a wonderful car to drive. It's a very lightweight car with this very kind of like 
The suspension is created in such a way that it feels like you're really sitting in the car, uh, and the car feels like an extension of your body as mm. you're driving. So you really feel like you feel the texture and the contour of the road as you're driving. And it has this, the distribution of the weight is really good. So it has a lot of like, it handles really particularly well when you drive it. So it, it feels like it doesn't, there's so many cars that are built nowadays that you feel really disconnected from the road. And the Mazda Miata is the opposite. It feels like their, their motto was rider horse, one body uh, for this car. It also gets like, pretty good gas mileage considering and it's this kind of lightweight sports car that feels like a sports car but is also the kind of thing you can just drive around every day but the other thing that i love about this one that ties in with the film is that it's a remake of like not a remake but it's an homage to classic old convertible sports cars so it's taking Mm. these old sports sports cars and then updating it with this kind of newer formula and newer science that allows them to do things that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise and so i thought that was a really great choice for this film and the ryan johnson film in particular yeah i would have guessed that it was a car designed or changed somewhat for the film it looks great it's a very cool looking car it's Um, a great looking car and the the red color of it really pops, especially for a movie that tends on the darker side of yeah. the color palette, at least when you're not in the field. <laughs> it seems like they've color corrected the film in a lot of the parts to make it a little bit darker, and so that red really mm. stands out. I, that makes sense. For sure. And they, it, I think they did update the car, just, but only slightly. It, like most of the things in this film, they tried to keep it as practical as possible and then just add, like, a touch or a flare of future stuff. And so they kind of did that with the car as well. So it's mostly just, you know, this Mazda Miata that's been around since the eighties and nineties. And with just a hint of, you know, of future design in it. How did they, do you know how they did the, the coin hovering? Uh, no, I do not know how they did the coin hovering. That one I didn't look closely enough, but, but it did look great. The coin hovering stuff. I, the yeah, I, thought stuff. It looked, I thought it looked really great. And that's one of those places where it generally worked on me really, really well. When the like when they introduced the telekinesis, I was like, oh, that's going to like my brain immediately went, oh, that's going to be important later. And I also thought like I thought about how there must be people who would be more powerful than just being able to float a coin. Right. So, like, my brain did think about it, but then I, the movie started moving too fast by the time mm-hmm. the reveal happened. And we'll talk about it in our last scene. But I, yeah, I didn't, like, I just completely forgot until Joseph Gordon Lovett said, like, explicitly said that he was a TK. Yeah, the kid was a TK. Same thing um, happened to me the first time I watched it and the second time. I just forgot about that stuff until it got to the end of the movie. And I was like, oh, yeah, that, the kid, he's a TK. So it worked. Yeah, that part worked. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I wanted to add, there's this quote that was, that really stood out to me. I had to pause the film and go and write it down. This time I was watching it with Lori. So I had to be like, oh, I got to write this down for the podcast. So I went and wrote it and had to rewind so I could write the quote down. But Abe, the character that is 
let's see, Jeff Daniels' character. Uh, Abe. Yeah, Jeff Daniels. So they come in and have this little interview, and uh, and he's dressed up like, you know, a little bit like a future guy. He's wearing like very comfortable pajamas or something. And Joseph Joe is wearing like you know this very kind of like eighties mobster kind of jacket and a tie and a, a white shirt. And Abe says the movies that you're dressing like are just copying other movies. And he says, you need to do something move new. Put a glowing thing around your neck or something. And <laughs> if there was any quote that I think really exemplifies a Ryan Johnson film is this part where he says, the movies that you're dressing like are just copying other movies. Because he's he's so much about like looking at this the history of the film and the way that genres doing do things. And then taking those things and bringing those tropes into the future but then updating them and i think that it really expresses ryan johnson's ethos of of trying to find what really works and what connects with people from things that are in the past while also looking at them with fresh eyes from a more modern lens yeah and i think it's also a way for him to i felt like his lampshades in this movie were particularly a lot of them were particularly obvious to me. And I mm-hmm. I think this was also a way for him to lampshade, like, why he wanted Joseph Gordon-Levitt to look the way he does in this movie, which is yeah. a very good and affecting look. But doesn't make a ton of sense for being whatever we are, 30 years in the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. But but the look of the current film is so great, I don't care. It's fine with me. So No, it's it's totally fine with yeah. me. And honestly, like it doesn't bother the other big lampshade that comes to mind is there is that line right before he sees Jeff Daniels that does so much work for the movie where they're like, Oh yeah, these guns can't hit anyone further than fifteen feet away from you. <laughs> yeah. And so <laughs> it like gives you justification for the entire film why no one can ever hit anyone. Yeah. 15 feet away from them well and it also makes the entire like that's what the climax hinges on is that the guy's yeah. more than 15 feet away and he's like well can't do anything i guess so uh, yeah i guess <laughs> yeah. there's there's nothing to be done but it worked for me i mean i thought about it and definitely thought it was a little goofy but it didn't bother me yeah in the film i i would rather he have had that line than ignore it which i feel like is what most people do yeah, for sure. And then one of the other things that he ta- talks about with the tie is he they keep making reference to how ties like loop around you. So oh, that's which is, I didn't yeah. notice that. So it's a loop around your neck. And so anyway, that brings us to our next scene here, which is the one where the loop runs. But all uh, this is your scene. Yeah, this is mine. So there, there I have a lot, a lot of various things to say about this scene. So. Probably the most disturbing, and I wish this was not true, but this was this was the trailer for the movie, or at least this was the trailer yeah. that I saw a lot. And I saw it enough times, probably because I was just seeing a lot of action movies in the theater over the summer, or a lot of genre movies in the theater over the summer, that even though, even 10 years later, I haven't watched this trailer for a decade, and... I have a Fantasia, so I can't remember pictures in my head. And I wasn't even sure which movie this was until I turned it on to watch it. And I still 
knew this scene was coming. And yeah. as soon as it happened, I was like, oh, we're finally here. Yeah. And that kind of sucks. Like, it kind of sucks that this scene is, whatever, 25 minutes or 30 minutes into the movie. And, like, I have to spend the entire beginning of the movie waiting for it. It's not the fault of the movie. It's I, I don't even know if it's the fault of the marketing team because I totally understand why they did it. And so much of making trailers is, like, a trade-off of how are you going to get butts in seats yeah. and also not ruin the movie. So I get it. I don't want to disparage yeah, because for making the decision. I just cannot imagine how you get people to watch this movie without putting that in the trailer. Like, yeah, Bruce Willis is this guy. He's turned, you know, he's coming back like in a Terminator movie, and that's the that's the pitch. Go and watch this movie. You're gonna like it. I I don't know. It's it's so hard to figure out how to market it without giving that away. Yeah. Oh, I guess I wrote it down. It's 26 minutes and 30 seconds into the movie. I will say, I was really hoping that that you wouldn't remember it um that's why i tried not to like say anything yeah. about it when we'd first talked because i was like hopefully you won't re- remember it because it'll be really interesting to see his perspective but it's stuck that image is so iconic too with him like on the tarp and he's facing the other way and looks into his eyes so it makes yeah, sense and to his me his head but, pans up yeah yeah fortunately all of that sort of disappears at the end of the sequence because then I was completely unmoored and everything that I was expecting was not where we were. So so that feeling actually did not last very long, which is probably why they felt comfortable doing this. It's just, I think one of the big differences for me, and this movie I think helped me realize this, is how much I love that like opening 30 minutes of movies where you're like trying to find your I've talked about this on the show yes. before but I'm I'm guessing that it that section of the movie is just generally more important to me than it is to a lot of other people. You love the the feeling of trying to figure out what are the rules here? What am I supposed to be knowing? How do I situate myself? All of those kinds of things that the that a good filmmaker is trying to like guide you through so that you feel comfortable. Yeah, and it's something that you actually get a lot more often in books because there aren't really trailers for books, and it's a lot easier to not read the dust cover, not read the back of the book if that's something that you're not interested in. So that it's an experience that I get a lot when I'm reading where the first third of the book is generally, like I generally prefer the first third and the last third of the book of a book a lot more than than the middle third or if you're reading a brandon sanderson book that's two-thirds of the book is taken up by this you know <laughs> establishing the rules of the world you're in <laughs> so that's probably why i like his book so much yeah makes sense <laughs> so so th- so this scene happens where bruce willis appears and it did in well, I'll talk about that in a little bit because it's another thing I didn't like as much and I want to talk about the stuff that I did like. This sequence, there are two action sequences that happen over the course of this section that are really just unbelievably good. And the it was a very aha moment for me where, so this moment where Bruce Willis turns around and then he shoots him in the back and then Bruce Willis pulls the pulls one of the gold gold bars out and throws it at Joe and it hits the gun and it is just supremely shot, supremely choreographed. Uh, Everything is so crisp and on rewatch, it slows down at like just the right 
time so that you're able to grok everything, but not so much that I, on first watch, I even like clocked that we were moving into slow motion. So this action sequence worked perfectly for me. And then same thing with the very brief action sequence that happens in his apartment where oh, yeah. he, and it has that really cool, I guess it's horizontal tracking shot where he jumps over him under when whoever his pursuer is, is down in his, his money vault and he jumps over and closes the lid. And it is, it is just such a cool shot. And it was a moment where I was like, Oh, this is why, this is why you got hired to do a star Wars film. Cause you just nailed these moments in yeah. Looper. Yeah. They're very simple action scenes, but they're, yeah. they work really well. And the practicality of these things is mm-hmm. uh, really caught me as well. Like when Bruce Willis, I love that they just appear from the future. There's not like some special effect, like CGI effect. You're just sitting there and all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's a guy there. Boom. Um, and yeah. so, and that fight that happens between Joe and old Joe, uh, Joseph and Bruce Willis, he just appears there and the the having to react so quickly it really sells like that moment that you would see yourself and just have that moment of hesitation and if someone was prepared for that they could react and that's when it slows down a little bit so you get a moment for him to 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 act but you really feel the emotions that are compelling the action that's happening so i enjoyed that as well yeah i did the other thing that really worked on me here was the discovery that once he would like once his pursuer was trapped in in that vault mm-hmm. that it didn't actually help all that much because it's not a metal floor <laughs> it's a wood floor <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then the like that just all tracked with me perfectly mm-hmm. the i got to have those discoveries and those emotions that at the same time joe did and then i also did I'm guessing some people maybe wouldn't like it as much, but I did really like the twisty camera as he was falling off of the, Uh when his hand slipped off of the ladder. Yeah, I love that scene too. It's just, and it's such a moment of panic because he slips off the ladder and it's just like, he's falling down. You're like, oh no, what's going to happen? He's dead. And then it rewinds and you don't find out what happens to him till significantly later. But yeah, the cinematography of that, that you get that feeling of vertigo as he's going over, I it worked really yeah. well for me, but I totally get, there's a few scenes that do that kind of thing in this film. So there's a scene where they're driving and it's like showing it upside down and then twist around and those kinds of things. But Oh yeah, that was cool. I yeah, like generally it worked for me. So yeah, good stuff. So yeah, the the thing that I mentioned before that did not work for me, it's possible I misunderstood, but I think there was an implication that Bruce Willis was showing up late, right? He was showing up a couple minutes late. Right. There. Well, yeah. it implies that it doesn't say it specifically, but there, he's like checking his watch a couple of times and acting kind of antsy like, like he's not on time. Well, and it passes the... Th- 30 minute mark which is right i think it's been established that they tend to show up like right at that when the second hand hits for for minute 30 and that's how he knows when to time the shot but there are a couple there's some time travel stuff here that 
I bumped on my first time through. And so one of them was I was expecting we were going to get an answer to the question of how the time travel got messed up because it it shouldn't matter what happens before he gets in the time capsule. Like it's time travel. You should it doesn't matter if you were delayed getting in. It still should be able to send you to the same time. And did that make sense? Did I explain that correctly? Yep. Yep. And so I was expecting that we were going to get some sort of explanation for why that happened. But I think the movie just expected us to think if he entered the thing 90 seconds later, he's going to appear 90 seconds later, which didn't make a ton of sense to me. So I got a little bit of good news. Um, there's okay. there's a deleted scene that basically explains that. And it just goes back mm. 30 years. So if you're like into the oh, thing, it the just sends you back. Time travel only goes back thirty years. The thing that they have set up, yeah, it's a it's a closed loop, or it's a okay, it's, I, it's a fixed loop. I needed I needed that scene because it also bothered me that what the rainmaker was doing in their time was tied to the loops getting closed now. Because I was like that, like it doesn't. He can close the loops whenever he wants. Like, if he wanted to close the loops, he should have been able to just close them all at whatever time period he wanted to close them in this time period. So I really needed that deleted scene. Yeah. So. But yeah, it's a deleted scene. And Ryan Johnson talked about it and he said, I don't know, like, we, we thought about including it. But one of the things that he says is that at some point, if you're having too many things that are explaining what's going on. It feels like you're just putting a bunch of patches over the holes in your jeans. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's why that scene, why they didn't have that scene. And it's in the diner scene that happens later. That scene was longer and he explains that. And it's just one line where he explains it's a fixed loop. That's where that's at. Yeah, I'm guessing, I'd be curious to hear from people whether this was something they bumped on. Like, I happen to love time travel stuff, and I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, so that's... I, I wonder if it's something that just, like, most people wouldn't bump on, so it's sort of not not a big deal. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to tell. It's such a difficult balancing act when you're making a time travel movie, because I totally get what he's saying, that if you explain too much, it doesn't feel like you're in a movie anymore. It feels like, you know, it, it, it loses some of that magic. And so sometimes you just got to let it be and let people kind of discuss it and figure it out on their own afterwards. But sometimes you really just need a, a moment to explain a little detail and it can be extremely helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it didn't like, it, it was something I bumped on and that my brain was trying to figure it out figure it out but it didn't really like ruin my enjoyment of the movie once it was over i wasn't like well that doesn't work you know i think it also helps to know that it was a conscious choice like yeah Mm -hmm. they they get it and they thought about you but they were making a decision and that's one of the things they had to cut like i think that's for me that's a helpful thing to know sometimes yeah that makes sense so if you don't have anything else about that we can move on to the diner scene yeah Uh, let's move on to the diner scene Okay, yeah. So what happens here is Joe, young Joe, has been going to this diner basically every day and practicing French and flirting with this this waitress that speaks French. And he's lost track of old Joe. And so he decides to communicate with him. I love the communication here where he carves into his skin an arrow and then it says, 
Beatrix, the name of the waitress, and then Old Joe figures out where he's supposed to go so they can meet up and all of those things. And then there's this line once he arrives. He says, you know, there's a girl that works here on the weekends named Jen. He's like, oh, that would have been that would have been shorter. Uh, that would have been a lot better. So, <laughs> um, and and this, I think this is such a good example of the movie working just about perfectly for me mm-hmm. because it did have it has that moment before for his. I think it's his friend, right, who didn't close the loop. Yes, and then he he has mar- the old version of him has markings show up on his arm. And I was pretty sure, like, I was, like, 70 to 75% sure that that was a message being sent from the past to him. Mm-hmm. And then I think the implication here is supposed to be that, like, the young version of him actually got caught by by the bad guys. And they were, like, carving it into his arm to, to send a false message. Well... What I thought was particularly clever about that is that the first message they send on the young guy, um, I can't remember his name, Seth, is they do the arrow and then it says, be at this place at this time. Mm-hmm. And so the name that he carves in is Beatrix or Beatrice. Uh, and so oh, he uncovers it and it's that. like, it's the arrow and then it says, be at and then finishes the name. And so you're like, oh no, they caught him. It's the same way, and it's the same kind of shot where he reveals B and then at in the like the same kind of pattern. So I don't know. That was particularly clever from my perspective. Yeah, that that's cute. And I guess now that you say it, it did work on me in that way. I just had forgotten. And then I I loved the way they were able to reveal it here, and it doesn't like it's not all that explicit other than that one joke line and zooming in on joe's arm with the bandage around it like if you aren't paying attention at this point in the movie you're just not gonna get it because it's not gonna hold your hand and i loved it i i thought this was it was one of the most effective like seed plants in the movie. For sure, for sure. It's a that worked really well for me as well. The scene continues on and they have a little chat in the diner where they discuss well first old Joe says he's not gonna talk about time travel. He's like, No, we'd be out here all day making diagrams and straws <laughs> and all that stuff. And then he sits and talks about the time travel anyway. Um, so which was which is fun. One of the deleted scenes is he makes a diagram with straws. So, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And that's the scene where he explains that it's a fixed loop. He makes a little diagram with the straws and then he puts some salt out in between the straws. And the salt is like clumped more at one end and then only has a few pieces at closer to the other straw to indicate that like his memories that are closer to the end are a little bit clearer but then the other things are like fuzzier and they're all possibilities that could be happening anyway it's it he spends more time explaining that stuff but that's kind of what they cut and part of why they might have ended up cutting that line like where he explains that it's a fixed loop is that it's in the middle of him like doing the diagram and they're like we need to cut that whole part but in yeah, any case, they have their little conversation. You have this tension between them. One of the things that Ryan Johnson talked about, this was their hardest day of filming, was in this diner. Because it was just these two actors go, going against each other. And it was the first time on set that Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt like acted across from each other. It was this scene. 
So they came in and they had the prosthetics, and this was the first time they were going to see Joseph do, Young, or Joseph Gordon Levitt, do Bruce Willis in front of Bruce Willis. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. So it was a lot of like tension for because the entire movie hinges on how well he can execute this performance in front of him, like staring across each other face to face. And the performances were so good, and just the they ended up spending more film on this scene they shot for two days than they did on the entire movie of Brick. So, because wow. they just kept filming it and, you know, doing all these different angles and different takes and that stuff. And, I don't know, it really works for me the way this scene happens and the conversation happens. And this is also, like, the scene that you're just, like, kind of waiting for. And I kind of wasn't even sure if they were they were going to do it or at least the movie was successful in making me think they weren't going to do it and so then when you finally do get the scene of them talking to each other it's like oh thank goodness <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, for sure and then it, it it's the only time it happens in the movie so mm-hmm. it, i mean except the climax but that's so happens so fast and they don't really get to talk at that point so you kind of expect at some point that they're going to get together and like work together but but then it establishes later on that bruce willis is like not the good guy after this scene happens and he goes and murders a kid and so then you realize like this you know it's not gonna work but one of the things that you know the idea of this film bruce willis finds out there's a bad guy in the past he goes finds the guy and kills him like that's that's a bruce willis movie and that's kind of the idea that they were they were going for that they were trying to structure this around is that when you watch a bruce willis movie what you're expecting is that bruce willis is going to go find who needs to get taken care of and is going to take the guy out and then whatever happens along the way and that's the film that kind of gets established by Bruce Willis's character, Old Joe, in this scene. And it's not until later that we find out that he's basically the villain, that he's coming back to to murder children. You get kind of like his motivation, but also he's doing something that just is very monstrous, and so you can't support him in that decision anymore. But all of that works based on the performance here in the, in the diner. And at the, up until, like, this after this, you're still kind of on, or at least I was on Bruce Willis's side. Like, oh, I get why he's doing this. He's the good guy. Young Joe needs to listen to him, and he, he, needs, to, he needs to grow up and get over his stuff and all of that. And old Joe is more enlightened, and he needs to learn the ways from him. But it's not until later that you see that that's not what's going on. That's the idea that's being deconstructed. Yeah. And I think you maybe were wanting to save it for a cleanup or maybe you were planning to talk about it right now. But this is the scene where you find out about what, like his motivation, you find out that the Rainmaker had, as a casualty of trying to loop him, the Rainmaker had killed his wife, the woman that he loved. And I think this is a fine time to talk. We haven't really talked about fridging or the practice of fridging on the podcast but it's something that i know you have a lot of thoughts about yeah okay so but before we get into that why don't i explain quickly what it is just in case people don't yeah go ahead that's a great idea so fridging is a term that came i believe it came into use because it's something that 
was named after an event that happened in a Green Lantern comic. Correct. Where a Green Lantern had a girlfriend who was created who had no, like the character was created, but then didn't have any personality traits and didn't have any, like any, it turned out she had no reason for existing except Green Lantern discovers her in a fridge. And so the only reason that this woman was created was to create emotional pathos for a male character, to create tragedy for a male character. And so it's something... And by discovered in a fridge, we mean she was like chopped yes. up and stuff in. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so the now the the term has sort of morphed a little bit and tends to be used a little more liberally than the strict lines of woman is killed only for pathos of a male character. Now it tends to be used on a a sliding fridge scale for any time a a woman dies or a lady character dies, but particularly in service of a male character. Yeah. Particularly in service of a male character. Yeah. And so the term came about Gail Simone was doing a blog and she kind of put together a list of characters who had been fridged. And so she was, she called it women in refrigerators. And the, a lot of the way that it's used nowadays is that it's when a female character go either dies or goes through a traumatic, violent event in order to motivate a male character. And so a lot of those are not just like death scenes, but also rape scenes and sexual assault scenes are tied in Mm -hmm. with those. And a lot of the times, a lot of frigging scenes are both. So that's very frequent and oftentimes some kind of gratuitous violent event. For me, when I was watching this film, it was a really weird experience because I watched during this week, I watched this film, I watched X-Men Dark Phoenix, I watched Deadpool 2, and all of those have a major fridging scene. I had watched Metropolis, which is a film from like 1929 that also has a fridging scene in it. And then I also just recently watched Better Call Saul, and I don't want to spoil what's happened that because there might be some people that haven't caught up on it, but there's a fridging scene in that. Well, it's not a fridging scene. Someone dies and is stuffed into a fridge, but it's a it's a man, and so hmm. it's a, and it's very clear that they're like trying to call back to this trope and deconstruct the trope it was brilliant by the way the way that better call Saul handles it but it is very clearly like responding to this trope and so for some reason you know it's i happened to hit on a bunch of things that are dealing with the fridge in this week and so this one really really i connected with so i wanted to go and read and research a lot more about it i do think that i don't think that ryan johnson was trying to deconstruct the fridge as an idea, but I do think he is trying to deconstruct the violence in the motivation of violence in this film. And so I think that it's supposed to be set up as a typical fridging that's motivating Bruce Willis's character. But I think that the way the film ends is trying to to point out the ways in which it's not justified. All of the fridgings get erased by the end of the film, and that's no longer like the motivating factors. And not only is Bruce Willis's wife fridged in this flashback sequence, but also we learned that the character, the Rainmaker from the future, what 
part of what motivated him to become a villain it was that he had seen his mom die so it's like a fridging begat another fridging and you have a cycle of fridging that's going on and it's only when they can break this cycle and end the fridging things that are happening that you can break the cycle of violence entirely the issue for me though is that i don't know that it was executed in exactly that way and the same thing that you had mentioned earlier that sometimes it feels like it's trying to have its cake and eat it too i felt like Mm -hmm. the film was doing that it it's it doesn't it's trying to deconstruct the fridging but it uses a kind of a very blatant example of it in order to do it and doesn't deconstruct it until the very end so you're left sitting with that fridging for most of the film and kind of still using that trope and the motivation yeah, there's something that feels like if it's sort of a sliding a sliding scale, there is something that feels slightly less icky to me about it as a storytelling device when it's for motivation for villains, as it is in both cases in this movie, just because then it like then it isn't for a glorified purpose the same way it is for a hero. It's, but it's still something yeah. I thought about for this movie. It's lampshading the villain is like, this is why they're the bad guys. And so it's bad that yeah. they're using this as a motivation. Yeah. Yeah, it's that makes sense as well. I do think that there's, that the fridge is off. Like, as you said, there's kind of a spectrum of where the the harm comes from these kinds of things. You have some fridging scenes like, and again, I don't want to spoil things that we might, that we haven't covered and things like that, but it feels really difficult to talk about it without mentioning. There's a particularly gratuitous version of this in Deadpool 2, for example, or in X-Men Dark Phoenix. Both of these I had watched recently, and those are, like, they're they're pretty bad versions of of fridging. And so by comparison, I was like, oh, at least this one, they're actually, you know, like doing some deconstruction of it and those kinds of things. But it is, it is, it was prevalent. It's prevalent in a lot of genre uh, stories as well, especially superhero films. Yeah. I mean, it came from, came from superheroes. Came so. from comic books. <laughs> Yeah, came from comic books, yeah. I, I just want to take just a couple minutes more to say I went through and researched the history of fridging. And one of the things that I was thinking before doing the research was that a lot of the reason why fridging happens is because you just so have so many male characters. And so you have uh, characters that are there to, like, serve their plot. And so if you have more female characters, you have, you'll have less fridging. And so I read this paper that was put together by someone that was investigating, like, researching... Uh, famous fridgings from comic books and doing an academic study about them. And she does mention there is some truth to that, that there is some amount of fridging that happens because you just don't have enough female characters and they're always in, in, they're always serving the plot as the male characters. But she also goes through and kind of puts together a, a lot of evidence that shows that a lot of these things were deliberate choices by people in order to marginalize female characters so a lot of characters when the female characters became when they passed outside the lines of what was expected for female characters at the time period or when culture had changed in ways that the those characters were no longer in favor of the cultural the cultural like um people in charge at the time period that that's when these fridgings would happen in particular in ways to marginalize the characters and they mentioned 
in particular Barbara Gordon from The Killing Joke and some mm-hmm. conversations between the people creating them and not not Alan Moore who was writing it but the the executives and they were like just kill that bitch off and, and the, excuse me for the language but that it was Dope. the purpose of that that fridging was they were trying to get rid of the character because they felt like she had overstepped her boundaries as a female superhero Oof. yeah it's rough so this is why for me it's hard to use this trope in a way that that works. I appreciate the deconstruction that's going on, but it doesn't it doesn't quite land for me because it just of the history of it is so fraught that it, it doesn't quite work for me in this film. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's all I got to say about that scene, though. I have one other slightly lighter thing, which is they so. In the two previous, literally lighter in this case, in the two previous diner scenes, I think it happens twice, you get this somewhat bizarre close-up of Joe's coffee cup. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, is this something that you noticed or do you know why they did this? I didn't notice. You got to explain it to me. Yeah, I was thinking you might not because you don't drink coffee. But don't. Both of those shots are of the the milk going into into the coffee and so of him stirring the cream in and it's sort of looping around the cup which i imagine is exactly what they meant to do but it also has a narrative purpose or at least a character purpose which is that when bruce willis's character sits down he orders his coffee black and so there's an implication here that you get both sides of the coin you get Somewhere over the last 30 years, he stopped taking cream in his coffee, but Ooh. then they order the same food. Yeah, so they, they order the same steak and eggs. And the, not only that, but they show up on the plate in the exact same way. Um, yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. But because they don't show his black coffee, I thought that might be something that had gone over your head because you don't have a coffee ritual. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm glad you pointed that out. All right, so the last scene that we wanted to talk about is <laughs> there's a lot of things I love about this scene. So this is the scene where the the young kid, the kid who's going to grow up to be the rainmaker is playing a little game with his mom where they're working on his multiplication tables <laughs> and they end up he ends up confronting her and calling her a liar and screaming and everything starts to starts to really go haywire in the house the wind is blowing and the mom ends up running away and hiding in in the safe and at this point i like i still had not put it together that the kid was a tk and so i had written down in my notes like what is going on is she like hallucinating this what because especially right afterwards, you get the shot of Joe and he he's looking at the house and the house is very still. And so I thought maybe it was setting up that there was some sort of neurological disorder that the mom had because she went to hide in the in the safe. And then everything just like clicked perfectly once they reveal that the kid is a TK because it was like, oh, she was hiding. Because at first you think she's going to the safe to like get a gun or something like that. Like, oh, she is. And then she gets inside and closes it. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is going on? Yeah. But then later it clicks that, like, she's going to get in the safe because 
she's going to be safer there. Like, it's protecting her from her son. Yeah. So I, I wanted to mention how how this scene worked on me. But the other thing I really liked is I think in general, this kid does really great acting in this movie. I think I was one of the things I really dislike when I'm watching child actors is I really dislike when I can see the director telling them exactly what to do Mm -hmm. and like coaxing exactly a specific performance from them. But I felt like this was really natural and particularly the moment where he picks the tile up and then defiantly puts it back down on the board. I feel like a lot of times I would have seen the, like, I would have seen, okay, you're going to pick the tile up, you're going to hold it in the air, you're going to count to two, and then you're going to put it back down. Hmm. Um, But instead, I felt like I saw the kid pick the tile up, look at Emily Blunt, and then make the decision to put it back down. And I just thought that was so effective. And it's nice when that happens because every so often I, if I watch a string of like movies where the child acting doesn't work for me, I fall into this rut of being like, I don't like any movies with kids in them. They just never work for me, even though like, that's not true. It's just harder for them to work. And I like it when they do. I try to remind myself that it's, you know, they're kids and it's hard. Acting's hard. And sometimes you got to have kids and you know, if they're not going to be perfect, you just say, Okay, it's a justification. You got to have kids. It's better to have a kid in it a lot of times than, you know, someone pretending to be a kid. But yes, this kid is, he does great work. Uh, Pierce Gagnon. This is another Mm. thing that Ryan Johnson talked about because he expected to have to explain, you know, precisely how to do things exactly what you had outlined for us. But then when they showed up to set, Pierce Gagnon, five-year-old kid, by the way, in this film, he's five while they're filming this. And he just shows up and he's, you know, taking direction just like the adults. And he he's just like, okay, what's my character feeling? And Ryan Johnson just <laughs> explains it. And then he's like, okay, I can do that. And then he just gets regular direction from the adults and then just acted it. And I realized that sounds like very like simple, but usually that's not the process for working with kids. So it's very... It was a very unique experience for Ryan Johnson and for the for the cast. I love that. Yeah, it was very good. One of the things that, that threw me off as I was watching it is I couldn't figure out. There's this moment where the, where the kid, Sid, he's like, uh, that's not my real mom. She's lying to me. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't figure out if that was true or not. I couldn't figure out if she's really his mom. Because they kind of sort of explain it a little bit, but they explain it kind of quickly and not directly it's obliquely and i i i still am not sure if that's his mom or i thought about this and i think i think you are supposed to think it's his mom but it is like a little contrived to create tension between them where he thinks that she's not his mom but i think the reason you're supposed to think that she is is because there's that scene where it's revealed that she's a TK. And so I think the oh, idea is okay. supposed to be that it's genetic and he he got it from her. So she had mentioned her sister. That, that's what I was trying to figure out if his sister was the actual mom. Her sister was the actual mom. But I guess that what it's saying is that she had like just dumped him at his sister's house. 
Yeah, and then exactly. when she died, she went to go pick him up. Okay, that that makes more sense to me. I was, like I said, I it just threw me off a little bit, and I wasn't sure. I didn't pick up on the clues exactly. But when when she dropped him at her sister's, he was too young to remember that. So. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Did you, did you have anything else you wanted to say about the safe scene, or should we move into cleanup? We can move into cleanup. Okay. I think I only have. I think I only have one thing. I have three. Okay, so why don't you go first? Okay, so the first thing that that stood out to me, this is another thing that I saw from the interviews with with Ryan Johnson afterwards, but I was like, one thing that threw me off is how, why is it easier to dispose of the bodies in the past? Um, <laughs> like, they end up shooting Bruce Willis's wife. This is credited in the film as joe's wife just to be clear she doesn't even have a name and i I don't know that's another thing that bugs me anyway summer ching is the actress's name and they they end up killing her and like this is that not an issue in the interviews i wondered about that too he does explain so what happens is they all have nanotechnology embodied embedded into their skin so when someone dies it automatically sends a signal to the police that the person has died and their last uh, last location of where they were at. So it's the GPS signal and in identification and all of those things is in their body. So when they die, that automatically goes. But when they're in the past, that signal is not not sent because they don't die. They don't die until they're in the in the past. So the nano bots don't activate, but they can't send the signal because they're in the past. So that is the reason why that's like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when the lady dies and gets shot earlier, that's a giant screw up and it's going to cause massive problems for them going going forward. And it wasn't supposed supposed to happen but that's the reason why they're sending them into the past got it yeah which i don't uh, know that helped and they me. probably were just too far in because they also could just be like if someone kills someone in the past you can't prosecute them because the body doesn't exist yet like there there was a simpler solution there but they were probably just too far into the film by the time they cut that scene so um well, it's it's not something that was cut. He just didn't put it in there. He just is. Uh, oh, it just never made. Yeah, it. but this was in his original script. Was was that's the justification? So it's like part of his original idea was the nanobots that are in the in the body making it so that it reports your last known location as soon as it happens. So that's like the original idea, actually. Oh, I guess I have two things, so I can go again. How I I spent a lot of time. So after the blackout when it jumps back to Bruce Willis escaping or not escaping when it jumps back to him, the execution going as planned because of the timing of this, it took a long time for me to realize, like maybe I think even until after the movie was over for me to figure out that we weren't in a branching timeline. We were Mm. in what had previously happened in Bruce Willis's life and that this was something that was getting erased from his memory because I don't think it was ever really made like explicitly clear that he was losing those memories because they got overwritten. I think it worked okay, but I was curious, like I think I was able to figure it out and it didn't end up taking me out of it, but I was curious how this worked for you either time, if you remember. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. I had kind of the same issue. I did, this is another one where I saw the interview where he talked about his uh, his justification here and like his thoughts was that he was 
they had two ways that they were thinking about making it. And one was mm. you start with like Joe and then it goes all the way through Bruce Willis's character. And then he goes back in time and you see, um, and you see kind of where things branch off. So, but they decided not to do that and just start from the branch from the very beginning. So the whole like beginning is it, the whole part is showing the branch from Joe's perspective and the reason why they did that is they wanted it to feel they wanted young Joe to be the protagonist and not old Joe. Yeah. And if you do it the other way, it feels too much like old Joe is the protagonist. So, which I think is a justifiable reason to to make that change. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And it was, as I said, it was not an issue for me, but it did. I did have to think through it. Yeah, for, for a while. That makes sense. It does. So what else do you have? Okay, so there's this guy that shows up at the house to like, you know, investigate. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay, so all I wanted to say about this guy is this guy, the actor's name is Garrett Dillahunt. And he is, I love this guy. He was in a TV show that I loved called Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. And mm-hmm. he plays a Terminator that is sent back in time to to murder <laughs> John Connor and Sarah Connor. And so, I don't know, it was just really cool to see him in the film that's like Terminator adjacent and was like, you know, inspired by Terminator in a lot of ways. And that he ended up getting in here and he does a brilliant performance in the Sarah Con- Connor Chronicles, though everyone in that film gave brilliant performances. And I really enjoyed seeing him here, so... Yeah, that guy. I liked him. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. What was your next um, your next thing? Do you know what my last thing is? I, there, There is something in this movie that is extremely unfortunate. I think it's worse than the fridging, worse than anything else, and it is it's pretty rough. Do you know? No, tell me. So when Emily Blunt, when Sarah is holding a gun on Joseph Gordon-Levitt, on Joe, he says, you wouldn't be able to hurt a... Oh, yes, the R word. An R, the the R slur, hobo with, or I guess slur is probably the wrong word, but whatever, and the offensive term starting with R. And man, it took me, it took me out of this. And part, a lot of it is like public consciousness for fridging has changed a lot over the last decade and i'm sure it has for this word as well but i like it was something that was known in 2012 it was something that was known in 2002 and it is just such a strange choice to have the your protagonist of the movie say it and it like it is just something that does not seem thought about at all and yeah that part sucked it sucks. Yeah. What the hell? Like I just yeah, that took me out completely all the same reasons why upsetting, I don't know. That that part sucked. Shouldn't be in there. I, there's uh, there's no justification for that part. Yeah, I mean, I assume the justification is it's just like a couple of guys who were pretty young and either didn't know better or whatever. I I would assume Ryan Johnson if you asked him about it would be like, "Yeah, I wish we hadn't done that. I did look it up and it does look like it was in the original script. So it just didn't get taken out. That makes sense. Yeah. But, yeah. I don't know. It's, so, it sucks. Anyway. <laughs> that Sorry sucks. to end on a downer. You can, you can go with your next thing. Mine's you not know. so much a downer. Um, and I, okay, that's good. this is something you notice as well, but on Hulu, this film is listed as a legal movie. <laughs> this is a legal movie. 
Like, uh... <laughs> um, this whole season, I have the tags that Hulu has put on have seemed really like weird to me. I don't know. Hulu is weird, man. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I can wholly recommend Hulu as a as a movie streaming platform. Yeah, which I don't think is what most people use it for. I think most people use it because it gets TV shows faster than yeah most other streaming platforms. I think so, but, but yeah, if if Streamit is going to review the streaming services, uh, Hulu gets two thumbs down from me. So yeah, unfortunately, yes, for sure. Anyway, that's all I had to say. All right, so then let's let's wrap this bad boy up. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to send us longer form thoughts, you can shoot us an email at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. Just those three words, podcaststreamit. And we'd love to hear from you. We're gearing up for our next season, which we're, we haven't locked it in stone yet but we're pretty sure it's going to be netflix so if there's movies that you that you want us to cover or movies you don't want us to cover or more genres that you'd like us to cover we definitely like to hear from you before we lock in all of those movies that we're going to do and we are going to be ending our fourth season with with a bang we're going to be hanging out with the mercenary Deadpool Ryan Reynolds <laughs> from 2016. So yeah, should be should be a banger, and we're we're gearing up for Deadpool three here sometime in the hopefully not too distant future. So I think that'll be fun. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. And as always, I do want to say thank you to David Stewart, aka Estoriel, for uh, helping us with the editing and also being our beta listener. Thank you, David. We love um, you. Yeah, thanks, David. And we'll finish up with a closing question here. This is from the diner scene where they his drink order has changed, but his food order has not. Mm. And so I'm curious, what is a food for you that has changed over time where now you eat it differently and one where it has not changed at all? You would still eat the exact same thing uh, 30 years later. Ooh. That's an interesting question. Let's see. So my first answer here for a food that's stayed the same is I, I generally like to have my eggs fried over, over easy. So it's, mm. and oh, I've, good. yeah, I've had my eggs fried over easy since I was like uh, 10 years old is when I found out that about cooking eggs differently. And I was like, I think I saw in like some movie or something that they were like uh, over easy, and I was like, "What's that?" Tried them out, and uh, I've been having eggs fried over easy ever since then. I think as far as food tastes that have changed, oh, I got an answer for this one. I used to hate tomatoes. I don't know why. Oh. Like I had this weird experience when I was a kid where my dad made me a tomato sandwich, and the tomato was just kind of sour. And I was like, nope, I hate tomatoes now. And then what happened to me is I moved down to South America to Chile, which has some of the best tomatoes in the world. They're so good. Just all the fruits and vegetables in Chile are amazing. And so I had uh, some fresh tomatoes and I was, you know, had a stuffed tomato 
that was stuffed with like tuna and um, and all kinds of different things into it. And this was this meal that was put in front of me at somebody's house. And I was like, I have to eat this entire stuffed tomato. And I had been like, I don't like tomatoes for my whole life. And then this was here. And I'm like, I can't offend these people by not eating this. So I just ate the whole stuffed tomato. And I didn't particularly enjoy it in that moment. But that kind of broke the dam for me to to like tomatoes. And now tomatoes are one of my favorite things to eat. I have tomatoes on, you know, whenever I'm eating a sandwich or something. And I'm always putting tomatoes on there. So that's been a major change for me. Oh, wow. There's hope for tomato haters out there. Yeah, look at that. My food that's changed is kind of similar. I used to be, I guess when I was younger, I was a lot pickier than I am now. And I used to, if I ordered a hamburger, I would always order it just with like nothing on it, just ketchup. Ah. And one time I was out with Evan and I ordered that and he was like, why would you do that? There are so many great things you can put on that burger. (laughs) And I was like, oh yeah, I guess why do I do that? And now I just... Every condiment, every topping I can get on my burger, I'll put it on. Like, doesn't matter. The more, the merrier. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I agree. Just put it, put whatever. You know, I have my, like my go-to burgers for things that I like, which is you know like some some lettuce and tomatoes and avocado and mayo and mustard and you know that kind of stuff. But I am also very open to eating whatever chips or Doritos or uh, onion rings or uh, it, it doesn't matter. You put whatever on the burger, I'm gonna eat it. Oh yeah, throw it all on. Yeah. And then I was trying to think of a food that stayed the same. And what came to mind is my mom used to, I mean, I assume she still does, but she used to make for me when I lived at home, one of my favorite dishes was pasta carbonara, which is like oh, a yes. linguine that's mm. uh, cooked in bacon fat and then has the bacon in it. And I make that recipe the exact same as my mom did when I was growing up and like, I love making it because it does just taste, to me, the exact same as it tasted 20 years ago. So that taste has not changed. Justifiable because that is an amazing, it is an amazing dish to eat. So it's classic. How could it change? Yeah, that's great. Well, I guess ending on food was kind of good because now I'm going to go eat some dinner. I know so. I'm hungry all of a sudden. All right. So we will talk to you next week for our season finale. Bye. Bye.